Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the U.S. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. Today, we're giving a rapid roundup of what's been changing for SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 genomics. Things are changing very quickly, so we should mention that it's the 9th of March, 2021, and some of what we mention might change by the time you hear this. Today, we're putting a spotlight on COVID-19 in Denmark, and we're joined by a special guest, Mads Albertson, who is Professor MSO at Center for Microbial Communities at Alborg University. So welcome, Mads. Thanks, happy to be here. And let's get started with reviewing the latest changes regarding variants of concern. Well, first of all, there's some language difficulties here. You know, is it variant of concern, VUI, VOI, VOC? It's getting a bit confusing now because everyone is using different things and no one agrees on anything. So in the UK, we say VOC, variant of concern. VUI is variant under investigation. That's kind of like the initial, something looks a bit off here. And then VOI is variant of interest. And again, that's something like we think there might be a problem here. I think really we need to do a bit of work to actually have a global set of words that we can use for these things because it's getting so confusing now. Everyone is confused because every group and every country seems to use different terms for different things to mean the same thing. We might need a number system, like declare a variant as like DEFCON 1 or DEFCON 5 or something. Yeah, but every country wants their own variants. And now it's become like this kind of token that you, you know, like a badge of honor, you, you have to have your own variant. And uh, these are kind of hype variants, people are calling them now. Like there's a, one the other day is B11318 which Finland have claimed for themselves, but as a Fin796H. And uh, yeah, they've claimed it for themselves, but they didn't really release the data. So, you know, they said, yeah, this is a problem, but then they didn't release the data to the world. So the rest of the world is looking again, okay, yeah, this is a problem. It's associated with, uh, say, Nigeria, West Africa. It has some interesting mutations there, which may make it concerning. But Finland, you know, had already claimed it themselves. No one really knew that, that we're talking about the same thing. So it actually took, you know, a little bit of time to figure out what they were describing kind of abstractly was actually what we were seeing in the data in GIS-AID, but from other countries. I think the lesson there is before you announce a hype variant that you actually go and uh, release your data and then also declare it so that we can add it to the lineages correctly. And of course, the UK is now calling this a VUI, a variant of under investigation. And so now we're up to eight, which is, is a fair few, but and they seem to be coming thick and fast a couple of weeks, which is quite a lot, you know, compared to December where we only had two. In the UK, we've now got eight variants, eight different variants, which are of concern. Interesting. And they're but, calling it Fin7968. What happened to bird names? I wanted to do that. That's that's an American only thing. <laughs> but, but just to understand this, the only three variants of concern right now 
There is B1351, which is the variant which originated in South Africa. Then there is P1, which originated in northern Brazil. And then there is the Kent variant, B117. But actually, the same mutations that are concerning are appearing everywhere. I believe there have been a few in the past week, which people have said these contain the same constellations of mutations that we've seen in other ones. And they're now spreading like wildfire in different areas. There's a... B1526, which is the New York variant. And of course, New York was hit heavily by COVID back in April. And now we have this variant spreading very, very quickly, which has E44K, eek, and it's popping up everywhere now in the US, which isn't very good. I presume it's because there's still so much travel happening uh, internally, domestically within the US, and it's allowing it to spread. Um, there is also a new one I've seen, even newer which is a B1324, which again is a US-centered variant. And that's got a N51Y and PU, which is P681H. Now, I, I think really the, the issue, it's not a bad thing. It's more that genomic surveillance in the US is just ramping up very, very, very rapidly. And now you're starting to get a, a much better indication of what's going on as the US starts doing sequencing. Whereas the UK has been doing this for quite a while and Denmark has been doing it for quite a while. So we have a really good idea of what's within our populations. Whereas the US has kind of been a bit blind because they're only doing what half a percent of all cases were being sequenced um, compared to like Denmark where, what are you guys up to now? Do you sequence everything? Yeah, we sequence uh, everything these days. I think we are 90% plus for most of, of this year. And is that attempted sequencing or actual successful? That's attempted sequencing. So we have around 70% of cases have a, a, a genome with less than 3,000 M's. That's awesome. That's so good. <laughs> I think you're the envy of the world because you've got scale and you have very, very high rates. Uh, whereas the rest of us, you know, are kind of lagging behind. So fair play. In terms of lineages, what are you seeing in, in Denmark at the moment? In Denmark, we've been watching uh, V117 uh, grow. It's been like a bad movie. You can just follow and predict. So right now we have 80% uh, in Denmark. What we have mostly other is, is old lineages. So some of the summer lineages that spread around, that are, they're declining now. And then we have one of these variants of interest, or what we call them, called V1525. It also has E484K that's around a few percent in Denmark now. So we've seen around 200 cases of this. So that's the, the B1525. Uh, we've seen it in Denmark and a few other countries among uh, Nigeria, I think. Grant, so do you think that uh, B117 is going to hit 100% in your area? No, I think uh, we'll always have small variants that, that uh, lurk uh, around, especially now we're opening Denmark uh, again. What's been happening in Denmark is that we basically crushed all of the variants until now. Uh, and then B117 has taken over, but we are not uh, crushed everything completely. So I think we'll still have these uh, 5% of other variants that will uh, circulate now that we open uh, Denmark. But let's see, it's both scary, but also interesting to sit and watch what happens. Absolutely. We have similar things here. We're reopening schools this week. We'll see what happens. Hopefully it won't be a problem, but they, they did get the number of cases down very, very much. Like so much that um, we're kind of stuck for work, you know, we don't have samples coming in the door, which is a, a fantastic thing. But we just fear that what's going to happen in whatever a month or six weeks 
down the road if things ramp up again. If anyone out there is interested in what's going on in Denmark, there's a nice website for that, which is covid19genomics.dk. That has all of the breakdowns of all of the different lineages we're talking about. It's nice to see that a lot of countries have set up these dashboards. I think we mentioned the US one last week. Mm-hmm. I think every country is slowly making their own version of these sort of uh, dashboards, making that data available for everyone. I presume at some stage we're going to have just like EC, CDC, or something like that dashboard or WHO dashboard and that's it you know every, every country will just have a clone of one dashboard instead of having 190 something dashboards if i did like a little bit of a survey with some companies over in the US and also and also just looking and seeing, seeing what's out there and i i do see some common trends like some people are using tableau as kind of their their dashboard and and making it really nice, a really nice visual, or else people are kind of breaking into some camps, like looking at um, MicroReact or Outbreak.info. I do think you're right. I think that people are starting to to go into some groups. Yeah, Tableau is really nice for for everything in general, just for data visualization. It's lovely. I'd highly recommend it. In Denmark, our site is simply just an AMA CAM file, and, and what you see on the page that's actually what we deliver to the government. Also, uh, it's just online on our our page a few days later. Yeah, so this is like the basic breakdown. And it, it's like an auto-generated R markdown file. Is that on on your website? You can kind of go through it. So that's on the, the COVID-19 genomics.tk. There's a statistics page, which is basically an R markdown file. There's a version of NextStrain as well. So can I ask in Denmark, have you seen E44 k coming into your B117 uh, samples? Uh, no, not yet. Uh, I guess we're expecting it to, to, to come at some point. So, so we are... Yeah watching it closely. And right now, because we sequence everything, uh, hopefully we can stamp it out before spreads. That's at least the, the point right now. So that's what we've been building up the last couple of months. Capacity to actually really do uh, variant-specific uh, stamping out uh, in the society, both with uh, extremely high testing capacity, sequencing, and now also search testing. Uh, so last week, there was search testing in areas with uh, B1351 to make sure we can start, try to stamp out some of these variants of concern. And how successful has your search testing been? Because in the UK, it hasn't, search testing just hasn't picked up the cases compared to just randomly uh, doing community surveillance. I think it seems to to work. So it's really highly intensive sequencing in blocks around where, where cases has uh, been. So if there's been suspicion of community spread, they've done search testing uh, to try to see if they can pick up the missing links. But so far, the majority of our other variants of concern has been related to travel history. And it seems like we've been able to stop most of those transmission chains. But let's see. There seems to be many more cases going around from the rest of Europe. So we also start to see many more imports. So it starts to be more and more difficult to keep them out. Let's talk some of the tools and resources that we've seen in the last few weeks that have come online, following on from the discussion of the dashboards, outbreak.info is a great resource for this. has got a compilation of all this different data on cases, broken down by geography or regions. You can find doubling rates. You can find all sorts of metadata available for, for download. And that's coming out from the NIH, I think, and Anderson's lab putting that together. I think the next one is pretty fun, which is something I spotted the other day, which is from David Clemens, a tweet from him saying that Galaxy is going to have a new public health community based around that. I think this is kind of in the similar vein of like Galaxy Tracker, but I think it's going to be more opened up and, and have a lot more, allow a lot more people to participate in that. 
that'll be really good having some standardized more public health integration with, with what galaxy provides i thought it was just kind of funny it says um please contact me if you want to join it and i tried to contact and it says um he doesn't receive direct messages <laughs> i'm gonna email him separately though i think galaxy is a great area to to go because it has such a deep history in bioinformatics and people know how to use it. There are large communities already that might be using it for public health, especially um, from FDA Genome Tracker. And I, I think it has a huge potential. It's definitely worth signing up. It's easy to use for biologists. So that's what makes it really good for non-technical people that can dive in. You don't need to spend days or weeks, you know, playing around with Nextflow pipelines or whatever. You can just click, 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 and there you go. And we've had people with next to zero technical skills just in an hour they're flying with galaxy they can do assemblies annotation whatever so it is really really useful and uh, i think people should make better use of it i don't know if this is something that that you are knowledgeable with but like when i was trying to make a tool in galaxy it was like xml based and you'd have to write the tool with xml that's to add a new tool into the galaxy uh repositories but that's more on the that's on the developer side that they have to do that but once that's in the you know repo, then anyone can install it with a click and get down to using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, since, since we're a bioinformatics podcast, it's just, it's interesting to see like... I think in time, they're going to simplify that down a bit and it's going to be a bit easier to do. Well, it yeah. only has to be done once in the world, you know? One person goes, does a tool, that's it. And then forevermore, it's in a tool shed. You can click and it magically works or drag and drop and put it into a pipeline. So it, it's a reasonable amount of pain as long as people share their work. I think it's fun to use words like that, like pain, but I, uh, I made like a very simple tool one time and it actually is very straightforward with the XML, as long as it's just a few parameters. I, I thought it was very nice. I think last thing, just to round up the new tools and resources that are out there, we've got a SARS-CoV-2 Nextflow pipeline that's coming out from uh, Johan Bernal and Varun Shamana and Anthony Underwood. I don't think it's deviating too much from what's available out there in the Nextflow pipeline uh, for SARS-CoV-2, but does have integrated into it stuff for creating and visualizing trees. I think this is sort of an attempt to take you from start to finish completely, where I think at the moment, Nextflow pipeline is kind of like, they generate, the, they call all the variants, they make the consensus sequences, and then it's like, well, have fun. <laughs> it's up to you now to kind of align it and go off and, and make trees or do whatever you want to do with it. So this this looks like a one-stop shop kind of version of, of, of a workflow. And so that's up now available on GitLab. We'll put a link in the show notes if people want to have a look at it. So should we switch over to some publications? So the first publication uh, is quite a bad one, unfortunately. It's a comparison of performance of different SARS-CoV-2 sequencing protocols. This single author paper, they've gone and just assembled some Arctic data with spades. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but you don't assemble Amplicon data. It doesn't work very well. And if you do, you're going to get terrible results. And that's exactly what they did. And they got terrible results. They got terrible in 50 as well. You know, there you go. And they have blindly downloaded the data from the archives. So this is a cautionary tale that you shouldn't just take data blindly from an archive where you don't know how it's been generated and how the method works, you're going to get bad results in, in that instance. In this case, the paper, I think, seemed to be more of an advertisement for the author's own method, own assembly method. So yes, 
please don't assemble you generate consensus sequences. That's why people always talk about consensus sequences and not assemblies. And if people do occasionally talk about an assembly, usually they're just misspeaking and really they mean a consensus sequence. I can't agree more. I, I think um, it's it's important to, to demonstrate your tools out there in the literature. It's also important to kind of put it by your peers before publishing, like some that kind of thing to catch some common sense things. Absolutely. There's a lot of really poor work in bioarchive and medarchive but of course hopefully once it's peer-reviewed it'll get rid of a lot of it or make it a lot of it better anyway moving on the who have proposed different definitions of variants of interest and variants of concern and this feeds back into what i was talking about earlier where we're all talking about different things for we're all using different words for the same things and no one has any consensus on anything. So the WHO are trying to fix that. I'm still seeing people use novel coronavirus 19 or NCOV 19 and HCOV 19. You know, I thought we, we'd fix all of that uh, nearly a year ago where we, you know, talking about SARS-CoV-2. But, you know, people stick with their terminologies and they hard code them into stuff. And that's that. Well, HCOV-19 is baked into Jazade. <laughs> and NCOV as well. Like, I'm surprised yeah. that's stuck around. There's no longer a novel coronavirus from 2019. We still call it next generation sequencing. <laughs> and next, next generation sequencing. thinking when they started talking about new variants, I was thinking, is there going to be a new, new variant and then a new, new, new variant? Perhaps. Yeah, the new variant stuff didn't last, for, <laughs> last very long wasn't scalable. This is one paper that came from a group in New York and the authors pool samples from 10 patients together to obtain the consensus sequence for the SARS-CoV-2 genomes. And then they deposited those genomes in Gisade as if, which doesn't have any way of distinguishing that kind of data from anything else. So that's problematic because obviously people are expecting for the genome to be from one, one sample, from one isolation. That could look like, you know, there's recombination or people might take it seriously if there's any sort of, any, any sort of mixed snips in that. Might not be likely in this case, but that's just something that people need to avoid doing, that sort of thing. This is a, a mix of, of ideas that just shouldn't have been mixed, um, pooling and genome sequencing. At the beginning, you know, when they didn't have testing capacity, it it did make sense to pool stuff to save some money and save reagents when you couldn't get any reagents. But in this day and age, you know, it's not really worth it. That puts it better in context. Okay. A lot of people were trying that to do mass screening was to just pool all the samples. I mean, you pooling samples for diagnostics makes sense to me because you can, you can drastically re reduce the number of tests logarithmically or, or whatever the adverb is you want to choose. That's great. But then like when you genome sequence, you don't want to do like metagenome sequence of all different SARS-CoV-2. I don't think you do. Matt's given you a metagenomics background. What do you think of this? Of a, if, if you had a hypothetical study that was sequencing from pooled samples? Seems uh, very creative to do. And of course it's, it's it needs uh, a label on it. So, so then you need to put it in a not in GSAFE, but put it in a proper database where it can actually label this stuff so we can filter it out afterwards then it's it's fine and i agree with you it's actually a nice way to do mass testing but not not sequencing i know in some places uh, they would have households say in the university of cambridge they're doing uh, asymptomatic screening and they would get everyone in the household would take a swab and then put it into the same physical tube and then that tube would go off to be tested or at least that's that's what they're talking about and that makes sense you know because then you're going to have a, a pooled sample from a household 
but then you'd really want to go back to the original person or the original household and then sequence every single individual from an individual swab, but not the actual pool itself. Okay, so the, the next paper on the list is SARS-CoV-2 within host diversity and transmission from Tanya in Oxford. This is actually a really awesome paper. I saw her give a talk the other day. And uh, so what Oxford used is actually hybrid capture rather than, than the Arctic Protocol, which is a, just a nice way to pull down exactly what you need. It has some limitations, so it doesn't work in high CT samples, but they're able to actually see minority variants um, much more clearly than you can see in Arctic, where an Arctic has a lot of issues around that. But they can see minority variants, and then they're able to track these variants as they went through different people. And sometimes the minority variants they could actually see would get transmitted. Usually it would be the, the main dominant variant. Sometimes you get, uh, say, two different variants being transmitted, uh, the major and minor. So like a cloud of infection, which you see with other pathogens, which is super interesting. So th this is a really, really major paper and fair play to them. You know, they've done a huge amount of work on it and I would highly recommend you go and read it. Often we, we talk also talk about some queries that have come up. So kind of questions that get fielded to us or we hear people asking around and then we, we, you know, we sort of talk about them here. So this one is the fact that what's the most up-to-date masking strategy for SARS-CoV-2 phylogenetics? I remember back when I was trying to learn SARS-CoV-2 assembly back in summer that somebody hosted like a VCF file of the sites that you ignore. And I can't remember who it was. I think that that list is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger all the time because uh, so many independent so many of these variants are arising independently and it's just going to cause chaos you can see it with the variants of concern with uh, n501y and, and whatever and e4k they're all arising independently everywhere and it, it just messes up fellow genetics we don't do global trees anymore it's just too much data and it's too difficult to do so we, we call lineages and then we build subtrees of what's of interest then we build a tree of a specific lineage if you're looking for, for variants within in there so that, that avoids many of those problems that are maybe not solvable. I had a case here today, actually, um, of lineage calling going terribly wrong. A colleague uh, told me, oh, yeah, we've got a P1 here. And obviously, you know, alarm bells are ringing. It was the first in this particular country. and People were um, getting quite concerned about it. But actually digging into it, it was just that this was a particular region of the world which hadn't been sequenced very well. There's very few genomes at all. From the entire continent uh, which is africa actually it was a different story altogether it wasn't that it was a p1 it was that this particular genome was 18 snips away from the nearest uh, ancestor that had been seen so nothing had been seen in between uh, in this transmission chain since like april last year and you know basically travel shut down no one was moving by air and so it kind of cut off and then it was just kind of rumbling along at a normal clock rate and just uh, knocking around and by coincidence we spotted it just because you know it, it was flagged up as a p1 but actually it, it does highlight the dangers of when you're dealing with genomes from under sequenced areas um, that you are going to have these lineages being called miscalled because the lineages are defined by basically what we see like in the UK and Denmark and the US, I worry of huge amounts of sequencing, but actually, you know, there is a lot of transmission elsewhere in the world, which we're not seeing at all. We're not even getting a glimpse of it. 
And actually, it's only when it accidentally pops up in travelers that we actually see there's a problem. I think there is quite a few whales out there, you know, big sea monsters that we haven't seen and are lurking below the surface that uh, we're, we're going to be finding as, th- as time goes on. You know, by chance, we should find many of these if they are in, in high frequency. We, we may not either. And it may be quite a while before we see them. The lesson to be learned here is don't blindly just take your lineages. If it's an important lineage, double tick mutations are there that you expect. In this particular case, there's like one out of about a dozen mutations that we expected for P1. And so it was clear it wasn't a P1, just based on weak data. So Public Health England now have a GitHub repository, PhD Genomics on Variant Definitions. And there they actually list in YAML uh, what are the different variants or different mutations that that define that lineage and, you know, what to look out for. So that's quite nice, actually, because it's machine readable and you can, you know, ingest that and you can double check exactly which mutations you expect for this given lineage and uh, which ones are there it can give you then an idea of, is this a confident call of this lineage or is it a probable or is it kind of a low quality best guess? So yeah, that's quite useful. Check it out. I, I know Lee has uh, views on that. He, he thinks VCF is better. I have opinions, guys, on VCF and YAML. If you're going to define SNPs, I, I think that VCF is an awful format, but also it is the format to describe SNPs. And it's kind of awkward to put that into YAML to me. And some people have already told me, um, well, YAML's better because it's freeform. But I would say that VCF is also freeform. It's just annoying because you have to define the freeform items up in your header first. I think the problem with, uh, with VCF is you get it, it will get you 90% of the way there. But then that last 10% is probably going to take you months you know, of uh, shoehorning it in. And really, maybe YAML is a quicker way to get to the end results. Yeah, it's easier to get to the definition when you're writing out YAML. But VCF is the thing that actually works in all these other workflows. Like other pipelines, other software actually read the VCFs appropriately, and they, they'll be able to use them appropriately. Like, like if you want to use something standard like VCF tools, you can't import a YAML. Let, let, let's see which one wins. Maybe uh, you'll just end up writing a converter between YAML and VCF. I know I'm on the losing side here, but I have a soapbox, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Mads, how do you QC your samples? So first of all, we run a lot of negative controls. So we run four negative controls per plate. And then we look for uh, several things. We look for strange long branches. Uh, just looks uh, weird. Then we look for the number of ambiguous sites, which indicate some sort of contamination. It could also be uh, eye snips or whatever you call it. So internal uh, variation within the host, but. 99% of what I've seen is contamination. So that's what we look out for mostly. Is it like some kind of standard software you're using or is it just, it's just pretty straightforward so it's not even worth doing something specific? So we do, uh, again, an R markdown report uh, that build, pulls in a, a tree and then puts SNPs uh, beside it uh, and shows the, so you can see the branch length and then we manually QC everything. I've seen another thing to look out for is that, say you have a B117, and then at N501Y, there's actually the wild type. Um, that, that's a, an indication that there's a, a major problem. Either you're miscalling it or there's contamination because you shouldn't have the wild type if you've got all the other um, defining mutations. Unless something's gone totally wrong and you know it, it's gone and switched back or something, a reverse mutation. 
Are you saying, Andrew, that some of your QC involves just like straightforward sanity checks too? Like maybe that's part of the whole process? So for important samples where people have queries, clinical queries, or where something is is not right or something that's very important, we always do a manual check, which is me. I do a manual check and I double check that the computer is actually working as intended and mostly it works, you know, but occasionally you'll spot these things which are odd and you would say, okay, that's just an artifact or that's contamination or actually that is right, but people are misinterpreting what it's saying. You know, you, you always have to look at the data and that's the hard bit, you know, computers can only get you so far. It's that last bit where you really do need a human to eyeball everything. That sounds like maybe, maybe there's a war story in there and I don't, and I'm unearthing <laughs> it. Every week I do reports for various different entities and a lot of that just involves eyeballing data. So taking the data that's been uh, produced by all the pipelines and sequencing and then just kind of munging it and making some kind of sense of it and sanity checking a lot of that as well. It's been made easier and easier and easier over time as stuff gets automated, but it does require a human to, to look at it. You know, you particularly in the UK where, or where we are in uh, Norwich and Norfolk, where we have a, such a high density of sequencing, we can then go and look at outbreaks, you know, say within hospitals or care homes or, or within small geographic locations. It is important that you do dig into it. I'm sure Mads use something similar because you have very high density sequencing, so you can look at these things as well. Yeah, sure. We, we look at at strange stuff. So, so it's it's not only sequence QC. It's also QC has samples been switched around, has plates been switched around. I've, we've seen everything. So we've QC'd a hundred thousand samples now. We've seen everything, uh, and even though it's at low rate, you will have cases where, by chance, two plates are switched around. Uh, and you need to spot that. Uh, and one of the things we do is we compare with the CT values. So for most of the Danish samples, we actually have CT values also. And that predicts quite well the, the success rate. So I can actually see from the pattern of CT values on a plate if it has been switched around with another. And these things happen at scale. What's your cutoff for the CT where you start saying it'll fail? Yeah, above 35. Uh, we drop uh, way below 50% success rate. It starts to drop around uh, 32. But it's a bit difficult to compare CT values. It depends on how it's actually set up in the, in the, in the country. Yeah, and some of the instruments actually don't actually sort of have a burn-in where they don't report the first couple of cycles. So what we've been doing recently as well is uh, where plates are questionable, we looked at the sex of the sample and more or less, we can, you know, what about 90% accuracy, you can tell if the sample is from a female, uh, it's, it's harder going the other way, but it does give us an indication of, is the plate totally messed up or is it roughly in the right ballpark? And that's been quite useful by looking at the human reads within a sample. So the RNA and DNA that, that originally were, were in there. And the veal is looking at me very strangely. Um, it, uh, in, in this particular case, is just um, we had samples coming from a different lab that we don't normally deal with, and there were some issues with sample sheets. So we we weren't very confident with the actual samples because uh, this particular lab was telling us there were 97 samples on a 96 well plate. So that that raised some alarm bells, uh, you know, straight off. But uh, 
yeah, we're we're using the sex of the person who provided the sample to, you know, look for things like um, rotations of plates and plate swaps. Wow. Do you get enough You do actually, yeah. Um, surprisingly, actually. Now it can, it can be as low as just a dozen, but often you'll get a few hundred reads or a few thousand reads. So it's it's a fair bit, particularly because we sequence on alumina, and we can get you know three to five thousand x for a sample. So actually, you do get a, a fair few human in there. Obviously, we we filter those out uh, before depositing them. So th those reads only ever stay within our institute and never leave the the wall. So it's not something you can do like in a large scale. It's just something we're using as a QC check. Are you thinking of any? Are you thinking of any other markers? You think? If you're putting your blanks in the same coordinates, you can obviously use that to check the orientation. Maz, do you have any war stories on this stuff? No, but we've seen it a lot. Uh, mix up of, of different sorts. So we've been running yeah a hundred thousand samples. So, so we I've seen a, a handful of it, and the most things we can actually spot again in the manual QC. For example, often we get plates that are not completely full, so we know some places should be uh, empty, and then we can easily spot it uh, from there. Mm -hmm. So we've had at least a handful of cases where we had to, to go back and revert it, uh, revert it. Normally, we can actually just look at the data and then revert it automatically afterwards and don't have to resequence it. But you need to, to really take care. There's so many steps involved uh, in these uh, pipelines. Well, I think we have a really good ending with a high note from Mads there. I want to thank Mads for joining us today. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.